I got to tell you, friends, Amnesty International brings out a 280-page report, investigation done over four years, summarizing the totality of the apartheid regime institutionalized and reproduced every day by the Israeli state against the Palestinian people. An extraordinary report, a tour de force. It's one of the first human rights organizations that's actually combined the experience of Palestinians in 48 Israel. That means in within the borders of 1948 Israel, uh, combine that with the experience of Palestinians in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and not to forget Palestinians in the diaspora. It has put into the framework of apartheid, the so-called right to return, UN Resolution 242, uh, which said that Palestinians have a right to return, but Israeli immigration policy prevents Palestinians from entering the country, returning to their homeland. Um, this is the first report of its kind that I've seen outside Palestinian human rights organizations, uh, which brings together this important point, also centrally documenting every aspect of humiliation undertaken uh, um, by the Israeli state against the Palestinians. Questions like employment, questions like housing segregation, questions like lack of mobility, basic questions of citizenship rights and so on. It's a very comprehensive document worth looking at. Stunningly, and stunningly in the text, Amnesty points out that the violations it has documented. Now, keep in mind, Amnesty International is a human rights organization. It's not a judicial body. It has no judicial powers. It is merely through its analysis of the evidence concluded that there is an apartheid-like condition um, in Israel imposed upon the Palestinians. That's all that Amnesty can do. It's not, again, a court or a judicial body. It's none of those things. It's, it does an analysis of the facts. That's what it has produced in 280 pages investigation lasting not actually four years, lasting much longer than that because they went back and used their earlier materials. For People's Dispatch, I had spoken this week to Philip Luther, um, who has been with Amnesty for 23 years, has been on this beat for a long time, is a highly um, intelligent, uh, highly um, informed person. So this is what Amnesty has said. But in the text, they mention that there is culpability uh, based on the Rome statutes. Now, that's the treaty that established the International Criminal Court. Uh, the treaty happened to be signed in Rome. That's why it's called the Rome Statute. Um, those Rome statutes include the crime of genocide, the crime of crimes against humanity, and so on. These are very serious crimes under international law. Amnesty, based on its analysis, has said that there is um, you know, uh, room here for the Rome statutes to be brought into effect. Meanwhile, last year, the uh, special prosecutor at the International Criminal Court, Fatih Ben Souda, um, had, had come out after a very long period of investigation and, and if you don't mind me saying so, also dithering. Uh, some of that dithering as a consequence of U.S. pressure on the International Criminal Court. Fatih Ben Souda came out and she said, we're going to open a serious investigation. The file is open now on Israel. It's an open file. Meanwhile, friends, we've gone from uh, Palestine to um, 
to the International Criminal Court, but in between in Geneva, the UN Human Rights Council impaneled a commission last year led by the very respected South African jurist Navi Pillay. They will put their report on the table sometime this year in Geneva. Now, her mandate is interesting. She is to look at crimes committed essentially by the Israeli state against the Palestinians from 1948 and the file is open, indefinite. There is no restricted time mandate, not this attack, that attack, this situation, that it's an open mandate to investigate. That's going to be a very important text that they put out there. Now, my friends, this is the reason why the Israeli government has tried to squelch all use of the word apartheid. I wrote a piece for Globetrotter, which you can read at People's Dispatch, about this, in fact, um, a very, very serious um, issue, very serious matter uh, got to be looked at because the Israeli government, interestingly, quite openly has said that they will not tolerate um, a look and see uh, anybody who uses the term apartheid, anti-Semites or terrorists. Uh, please go and read the report uh, at People's Dispatch. Also watch the interview with Luther, Philip Luther, responds to allegations from the Israeli foreign ministry that Amnesty used so-called terrorist sources. I really would like you to go and have a look at that interview because it's interesting to see what Philip Luther uh, says. Moving on, Israel uh, likes to position itself not as apartheid Israel, but as startup Israel, great company of technological developments and so on. Technological developments, I've seen you, Pegasus, you're on my phone. Prashant, probably on your phone as well. Tell us about Pegasus. Right, Vijay. So uh, Pegasus, of course, a source of news that it's hardly difficult to find a week when a revelation does not come out. The latest one, of course, was the New York Times report. Now, what is the larger politics behind that report is a very interesting question. Difficult to speculate, but I think some aspects of that report really need to be centered, which is, of course, I mean, a lot of attention has gone into the fact that the FBI tested a version of Pegasus called Phantom, and they finally decided not to use it, but uh, they did nonetheless test it. And even other agencies, such as the U.S. Drug Enforcement uh, Authority and the Secret Service, all had tried it out, or at least had negotiations with the NSO group. But I think the international implications are far more, you know, uh, extremely important to note. For instance, we have, we have the instance of Mexico, where... Pegasus was purchased. There's the case of, for instance, Thomas Zeron de Lucio, who was the head of the Mexican intelligence, who is believed to have been involved, for instance, in the Ayotzinapa massacre. And, you know, he was one of the people who was very actively involved in these discussions and in the use of this tool. We have the case of Panama, for instance, again, where international diplomacy itself is being, you know, whether the question of Pegasus and the ability to spy on your opponents played a role in international diplomacy in countries' votes in global bodies uh, in support of Israel. Now, Israel, of course, claims that we didn't ask for a quid pro quo, but uh, the truth is a far more, might be a far more complicated matter. The stories of uh, both the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, for instance, very important to note, they come much later in the story, but the fact that Mohammed bin Salman actually called Benjamin Netanyahu because the you know Pegasus had briefly cut off Saudi, uh, you know, Saudi operations. And he was able to bring it back on with just a phone call. Shows the extent to which, you know, all these regimes, all of them such close allies in the U.S., uh, sorry, U.S. bloc, so to speak, across the world, 
all of these powers, the extent of collusion between them, the extent of collaboration between them, of course, and the UAE also using it on a very prominent dissident. Uh, same software sold to Poland, to Hungary, right-wing governments across the world, and also coming close home to India, where apparently it was the centerpiece of a $2 billion deal with involved uh, missile systems as well. We actually, the, uh, this week itself, spoke to Paranjay Guhathakurta, a very senior uh, journalist who uh, whose, whose name has also been in the list of those who may have been targeted with the Pegasus uh, spyware. Uh, it's, it was interesting, the response in India, because a lot of people pointed out that the Supreme Court has set up a commission to inquire into this. But this report actually, and I think later follow-up reports by organizations, including The Wire, for instance, make it very clear that the Indian government does seem to have purchased uh, the Pegasus spyware, actually a cyber weapon. I think it's slightly you know, problematic or misleading to call it just spyware, because it's it is, in fact, a genuine weapon used by uh, governments across the world against their opponents, many of whom are civil or human rights activists, many of whom are journalists. So one good thing, of course, has been the fact that, uh, I mean, one important thing I think to note is that while this report paints the U.S. in uh, much, uh, does not paint them much of a harsh light, the fact remains that the U.S. is the home of a lot of these uh, similar technologies as well. So the focus on Pegasus is, of course, uh, taken away from the fact that most U.S. agencies possibly have very similar technology and also the fact that U.S. companies are probably bidding to take over the NSO group as well, which is likely to be a possibility. Over the past couple of years, what we've also seen is that uh, the constant uh, leaks from the media, the constant news reports that are taking place are probably likely to lead to a situation where NSO itself is bought by maybe a U.S. company, maybe a you know, series, uh, maybe may a group or a partnership. So uh, very interesting, I think, things to keep note of in coming weeks and months. Maybe it might be a small news of a small purchase somewhere, which might not get too much attention. But actually, the ramifications are very, very uh, important. I think for journalists across the world also, something to keep track of relentlessly because uh, this should not be a story which just gets buried and, uh, you know, there's no action further. I mean, God, it's a terrible thing, you know, uh, I keep, I'm afraid of my phone now. And uh, thanks, you know, Netanyahu and all your fellas in Israel and whoever's there now. Thanks for that. Uh, Zoe, bring us some good news, please. Take us to Cuba. I gather they've decided, you know, they're going to revise the family code and so on. We need good news to, well, I suppose the amnesty story wasn't such a bad piece of news. Uh, it's good to have a report like that. It's good that Pegasus has been revealed. But we need some good news. Come on. All right. Well, I'm going to give the people what they want, which is that Cuba, once again, is kind of a, a, just a beacon for humanity. I think there's no other way to say it. Um, currently, you know, yesterday marked 60 years since the beginning of the, you know, genocidal blockade against the country from the United States, which has been condemned over 30 times in the UN General Assembly, you know, over 144 billion dollars have been lost uh, by Cuba through this blockade. And yet not, you know, as we've covered, you know, for the past uh, two years, not only has Cuba been a beacon in terms of, you know, medical internationalism, sending doctors and healthcare workers to as far as Italy, countries across the African continent, Asia. Um, 
And, you know, of course, creating five vaccines, which are some of the most effective in the world, but also, you know, currently they've started this process, as you mentioned, Vijay, of reforming their family code. And, you know, not only um, is this a very important step in terms of expanding rights to all of the people in Cuba, um, but also I think it's interesting when you look at the process under which this is happening. So over the past several years, um, the, there have been uh, 23 versions of this family code that have been, you know, uh, put through debate in the in the National Assembly, um, different modifications through consultations. Now a draft version is going to be presented um, to the Cuban population. They will be able to participate, give their opinions on this text at over 78,000 different posts across the country where they will be able to say, you know, this is an interesting point. I don't really understand this. How do we take this forward? And really actively participate in the process of building um, this new family code, which would change the concept of what is the family nucleus, expand rights to LGBTQ community in the country, um, you know, redefining what is the legal family institution, breaking with, you know, the heteronormative model, which has been enforced, you know, across the world through fire and by blood and uh, establishing the, uh, the right as a family to live free from violence, um, valuing love, affection, solidarity and responsibility. I mean, this is really groundbreaking. And I think it's so important to value this process that's going, uh, that's underway in Cuba. You know, as I mentioned, it's a participatory process. The Cuban people are actively, you know, partaking in democracy. This is really what democracy is, is being able to understand what laws are being passed, being able to, you know, add your voice, ask questions, understand what's going forward, you know, the willingness to dialogue, to engage. Um, I think it's really just uh, an incredible example for all of us. And, you know, especially as Cuba, you know, faces so many challenges, faces the brutal challenges of the blockade, over $144 billion lost by Cuba. They're currently facing a very challenging situation, socioeconomic situation. You know, our comrades in uh, part of the International People's Assembly have uh, organized many solidarity efforts, bringing, you know, tons of powdered milk to, you know, be stand with the Cuban people in this moment. And yet, despite all of these difficulties, they're undertaking an incredible process of democracy. I think we only have to look at the United States to see, uh, you know, in the past year, all of Joe Biden's promises to, you know, bring back better, build back better for the American people, which received, you know, 70% approval rate has been struck down by two obstinate right-wing Democratic senators. That's not democracy. This is democracy. Changing the concept of the family, bringing more rights to the people and allowing them to participate in that process. It's very difficult to change cultures. And, you know, I think that's why it's taken such a long time to advance a dialogue and so on. Uh, very interesting developments in Cuba. I want to say, Zoe, it's not only those two right-wing Democrats. Don't forget the 40-odd right-wing Republicans who also stood against, uh, they seem to get a pass because people always assume that, well, the Republicans are just going to be nuts. But, you know, this is about infrastructure and nobody seems, the ruling class in the United States doesn't seem to care about uh, building their society. Whereas, you know, what you're reporting on in Cuba is a, um, is a project which says, well, how do we advance things? A project that says, how do we advance things? Prashant, I read Pavan Kulkarni's article at People's Dispatch, um, you know, about the situation in Sudan. 
where he reports um, that the military junta is trying to bring back the government or the regime of Omar al-Bashir overthrown in April 2019. I was a little chilled. I'm, I'm afraid to say I haven't followed the recent developments in Sudan so closely. It's an excellent article. I recommend people go read it at peoplesdispatch.org. A very important article. Prashant, take us to this, I think, disturbing development in Sudan. Uh, right, Vijay. In fact, we'll be soon. <clears throat> sorry, we'll be soon having another report as well on uh, with an interview with the resistance committees, our representatives of the resistance committees on the ground, which will actually be covering a bit more of what exactly is happening on the ground. But a couple of important things I think to note uh, in Sudan. First of all, what you mentioned, very you know, very problematic development, which is that the nationalist Cong national congress party of former president Omar al Bashir which was pretty much, you know, along with Omar al-Bashir, a lot of many, many of these people were overthrown or removed from their positions after the Sudanese revolution, are now making a comeback with the help of the military junta. And it's important to note because there was uh, there's something called the Empowerment Removal Committee or the ERC. And this committee was set up specifically after the revolution to purge those elements which had been so complicit in financial crimes, in you know, uh, suppressing po the popular will in all kinds of uh, abuses of various sorts. And this committee was actually set up as a structural solution to that problem in terms of, uh, say, removing these elements from power. Because often what happens is that even if the figurehead or the ruler is moved, the regime nonetheless remains. We've seen that very strongly, for instance, in a country like Algeria, which is why it has not completely succeeded. But Sudan set out to be different. And after the coup on October 25th, where the military under Abdul Fattah al-Burhan came back to power. One of the things they've slowly been doing is actually reinstating many of these people. The latest, I think on January 24th, about 100 civil servants were uh, reinstated. Certain other important uh, organizations also brought back into prominence because of that. So that's one thing to very carefully sort of note. In terms of protests, we've seen that the death toll uh, since the October 25th revolution, the, the coup, itself has been 79 people have 79 protesters have died. In fact, Human Rights Watch has a report which came out just yesterday, which says, uh, which states, states a fairly obvious thing in some senses, in some ways like the Amnesty report, but nonetheless needs very strongly to be mentioned that the security forces have repeatedly used excessive and unnecessary force against the protesters. So again, yet another, you know, and they have brought in again a lot of evidence, witnesses from the ground, uh, say, a photographic evidence to actually substantiate that point. So, uh, of course, nonetheless, the struggles are continuing. For instance, I believe the resistance committees have set something, what is, set, what, set what is called a revolution timetable for this month. There are protests going to take place on the 7th, the 14th, the 21st, and the 28th. The other important thing to note, I think, is that Egypt has also been identified very clearly as an ally of the military junta. So there are blockades that are taking place on the road with, uh, you know, on the roads leading to Egypt, connecting Egypt and Sudan by farmers, by protesters, because they're unhappy. There are commercial reasons and economic reasons for it, but also political reasons in the sense the support given by the uh, Al-Sisi regime to the Sudanese junta and the close relations between them. Also need to see this in the context of the larger politics in, uh, uh, in North Africa, in the Horn of Africa region. Egypt and the Sudanese military, both close allies of Israel, and the United States, in that sense, it connects to what we're talking about, that, you know, that web of uh, authoritarian and problematic and deeply problematic regimes across the world, which are connected by links like this. So very important month to watch out for February in terms of mass protests. And we'll be definitely covering more of this as well. 
Got to go and read that story, friends, at People's Dispatch by Pawan Kulkarni. Uh, very important. And Prashant says another one coming interview. Got to go and look at that. Um, Zoe, I just spent some time last week looking at a bunch of reports, as I often do. God knows why. Read a report from Transgender Europe. Actually got to know about this report from Brazil de Fato, the website uh, that is linked to People's Dispatch. Um, it's a report that suggested that for the 13th consecutive year, Brazil is the country with the highest number of murders of trans peoples, highest number in for over for 13 years consecutively. Uh, 70% of murders of LGBTQ people take place in Latin America and Central America. I did not know that. I know you can say that the this is about how reporting data is collected and so on, but still very significant. Now, there's been lynchings and so on in Brazil. It's not a new thing in Brazil. There have been protests. Tell us about what's going on. Well, it's a it's a pretty tragic story, to be honest. Um, and as you mentioned, there is, you know, a very high level of hate violence and hate crimes that take place in Brazil. Um, we won't go into that, you know, what's behind that, uh, you know, the deeper the deeper factors. But essentially, uh, last week, a young uh, Congolese migrant, uh, Moise Kavangame, um, he was uh, he worked uh, two shifts at a kitchen in Rio de Janeiro in one of the you know restaurants next to the beach. He goes to ask for his salary um, because he wasn't paid, so asking for his stolen wages. Um, and the owner and several of his friends tie him up and beat him to death and leave him there um, to die. And you know I think this this really tragic case, which has been responded to with you know widespread rejection, protests from you know movements such as the Levante Popular da Juventude, um, really signifies the current moment of crisis, humanitarian crisis of just deep of deep crisis in Brazil right now. You know you have a situation where there's you know, a large part of the population that's working in the informal sector. They don't have labor rights that, you know, Brazilian labor movement has fought so hard to win under the past couple of years under the Bolsonaro presidency. And of course, following the coup against Elma Rousseff, a lot of these labor rights and protections to workers were taken away. So there's a great vulnerability of workers. You have a lot of workers like Moise who are, you know, forced to go day to day looking for kitchen jobs that they not necessarily getting paid for. There's a, you know, a tremendous growth in racist violence um, in Brazil. According to Levante Popular, they say that every 23 minutes a black person is assassinated in Brazil. And that is, that's an incredibly high number. I think, I mean, we're talking maybe higher numbers than in the United States, which is a center of, you know, horrible racialized violence. Um, and so I think this really brutal death of Moise is igniting a, a very necessary debate once again. And I think throughout the pandemic, there have been several instances of horrific uh, violence against black people in Brazil, just really pointing to the structural issues at play, the, you know, structural racism faced by black people in Brazil, of course, you know, decades and centuries in the making, but if, there has been a significant increase under these far-right presidencies, which are, you know, systematically cutting back at programs that were put in place by the Workers' Party government to ensure access to education, to ensure access to rights, to try to bridge some of those historic gaps, giving more space to hate speech. I mean, Bolsonaro has said horrible things about Black people in the country. Um, and so it's a really, a really worrying shift. I mean, 
horrible for the family of this Congolese migrant. They flee from a violent, a situation of violence only to be met with horrific hate and violence in Brazil. Just truly tragic and so much solidarity for these, the family and the victims that are, you know, seeking justice right now. Um, I think it's, you know, bringing this debate once again to the fore. Um, of course, this is a, a year of elections in Brazil. Will the project of hate that is represented by Bolsonaro be victorious against the project of inclusion, of granting rights, of trying to bridge these gaps, of, you know, trying to work towards and mend this horrific past that Brazil has of slavery, of colonization? It's an important task, and it's it's obviously becoming more important than ever as inequality is, you know, Brazil's back on the hunger map, poverty levels like unseen before. These all of these questions become more and more pressing at these moments. Well, I'm really glad that you've raised uh, this issue because we know this is a global problem and and it's important that it be tackled by social struggle and again it's a question of culture and changing attitudes and so on, changing attitudes. Um the Winter Olympics has opened in in China. Uh, there was quite a, a, a nice ceremony today. Vladimir Putin was there for the um, opening. Interesting. Uh, this means that the situation on the border with Ukraine is toned down. Unlikely otherwise that Mr. Putin would have left Moscow and gone to China for this. Um, but it, it has been an interesting week. And I want to, um, you know, uh, do a little bit of, of thought about this week because this week revolves around the term imminent. Um, United States said uh, at many points said that there was an imminent invasion of Ukraine by Russia. L let me share with you uh, some of that. Um, on the 25th of January, spokesperson Jen Psaki said, I think we said it was imminent. It remains imminent. This is 25th of January. Um, on the, uh, I guess it was the, you know, just this last Thursday, um, she was asked, do you change the term imminent? And she said, no, nothing has changed. On Tuesday, Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby said at a news briefing that Putin could move imminently at any time. The necessity of adding at any time after imminent was John Kirby's. Um, now, you know, the Ukrainian president himself, Zelensky, has been like, no, no, stop it. Uh, we can't afford this. Um, he said that his government was strong enough to keep everything under control and derail any attempt at destabilization. In meanwhile, Boris Johnson shows up in Ukraine um, playing, you know, uh, the role of the great uh, warrior when he's got a problem at home, can't tell the difference between a meeting and a party. Um, NATO troops, uh, are, you know, getting ready. Arms, weapons are going into Romania, going into Ukraine and so on. Germany has decided they don't want a conflict, but they sent helmets to Ukraine. Uh, thanks, Germany, for that. Um, so there was this whole discussion about imminent. And then in the phone call this Thursday, Zelensky and Biden spoke. That means on the 2nd of February. And they talked about this imminent business, uh, this tense business. Uh, just uh, today, I guess, Zelensky was not happy with this imminent word. And then we got um, Zen, Jen Psaki say that I used that once, she said. This is a lie. She's on record using it many times. I think others have used that once and then we stopped using it. I don't know what she means by stopped using it. They just used it a day ago. Um, so apparently the word imminent is no longer on the table. Um, the Russians uh, are going to return to 
the negotiation, Victoria Newland, who is in the State Department, gave an interview to TASS, actually, the Russian news service, where she said, we're coming back to the table, we're quite serious about negotiations, and so on. In order to sweeten um, the negotiation, you know, Ukraine country of 44 million, it's not a small place, um, there was a contra pretty controversial bill sitting in the Ukrainian parliament uh, about the transitional period in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Well, Russia wanted that bill withdrawn because it was going cart before the horse. First, they said, let's deal with the situation of Donbass and then you can have a law and so on. So what you had was the Ukrainian parliament withdrawing the bill um, just so that the quote unquote Normandy format talks, that's the talks of all the key parties uh, would take place in Paris last week. Well, these things are all going on. Let's see um, how it advances. I I'm, I'm actually feeling a little better. I'm not sure about you, Prashant and Zoe, but the withdrawal of the word imminent uh, signals that the United States might have peaked in its kind of warmongering on the Ukraine-Russian border, but we don't know. We don't know. Arms are going to come in. Um, there are still tensions uh, afoot on that border. Uh, one hopes that nobody is crazy enough to go to war. We're going to follow this closely. I am going to be looking at the word imminent and likely will be writing something about it. Also would like to explain to John Kirby, you don't need to say imminent at any time, uh, but so be it. You've been listening to give the people what they want, which the people want. Um, give the people what they want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant, peoplesdispatch.org. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. We have a tremendous producer, Surangia, who gets out that meme or whatever it is, that card on Twitter every week. Tell your friends about this show. Um, don't forget, we still accumulate selfies. Don't know what we'll do with them, but we like them. So let's see you uh, saturate social media with selfies. See you next week. Bye.